Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this episode, we're delighted to be joined by Adele Saunders, Manager of Psychological Health and Wellbeing at St. John. We discuss the influence that managers and peers have in providing first-level mental health and psychosocial support, and insights from a workplace where things like psychological trauma and PTSD are real risks that need to be actively managed. I started out my career not as a psychologist, actually. I'd I'd gone away and studied and done my master's in psychology and was looking to become registered and started working for an NGO in the social sector, working with adolescents, sort of 11 to 17-year-olds with really significant behavioral and sort of psychological, emotional challenges, often as a result of trauma, neglect, abuse, those sorts of things. So basically the clients were through Oranga Tamariki or what was known then as Child, Youth and Family and working in a bunch of different programs. So we had therapeutic programs, sort of family therapy programs. We had residential treatment programs. So the, the young people would come and live in either foster care or group homes and we would have a, a sort of a behaviour change and support based program to ensure we could get them back into the community and they sort of weren't doing, getting up to mischief as we're all seeing on the news at the moment. There's a bit of mischief going on with ram raids and things like that. So those would have typically been our clients in that space. And, you know, really got into that because I had a real focus on youth, loved it, loved working alongside them and seeing the changes, seeing seeing the sparks within them, seeing the, the strengths, you know, they, there was always something about them. And as I did that, I did that for 14 years. I was in a bunch of different roles at this organization. And towards the end of my time in that organization, found myself drifting towards the sort of staff support space, finding that supervision, coaching, training, mentoring, that sort of thing really floated my boat, floated my boat. Um, And loved, loved that. And actually, it wasn't necessarily part of my role, but it was something that was encouraged. And obviously, the outcome of that is that you've got strong, healthy, resilient, engaged staff who therefore that trickles on into the the impact onto the into the young people as well so they were getting sort of better care they had people that were well engaged and were and were feeling empowered to do their job in a really helpful way so I was doing that for for a little while and then approached to do some support for St John for their peer support group so they have a program a peer support program where they have frontline ambulance officers and paramedics who on a voluntary basis, support their colleagues after distressing incidents for personal related issues, you know, home relationship, all those sorts of things, and would see them once a month and provide some supervision for them. Um, and then this role came up internally within St. John, not this exact role, but an internal psychologist role and a new role. They'd created it. I thought, wow, I can I can do this full time. I can, you know, be paid and it can be my job description. How exciting is that? So joined St. John in 2018. And it was a little bit of a baptism by fire. I don't know if people are really familiar with St. John. We know him really well for ambulance, but we're actually much greater than that. We have about 6,000 staff in ambulance and about 20,000 staff and volunteers across the whole country in different parts, you know, community health. We have customers and supporters. So we do, you know, first aid, mental health, first aid. We do a bunch of different things. So it's quite a complex organisation. 
But obviously I was brought on board because we have that complex psychological harm or risk factor in the ambulance sector. So that's that's the main focus. Since then, we've had a reasonably turbulent time to, to say, to to be honest, we've had yeah, you know the mosque attacks soon after I arrived, mid-2018, and then obviously in March 2019. Then we had Fakari. And for the last two years, we've been trying to manage this COVID situation of the pandemic. So I still inc- love my job, incredibly so. I work with some incredible people. They are the people, particularly in the ambulance, who are rushing in to support people when everybody's rushing away. And they are incredibly resilient. And so it's really meaningful, rewarding work. The team is growing. We've now got essentially four staff that report into me. And so I'm now the manager of that team. And hopefully it'll grow. In, in the in the long term because I think there's, there's there's need and there's desire and you know we're on a journey and it'll probably never end when it comes to looking after our people. Mm. And tell me about that need. So what are some of the big risks or the, the big challenges that you find in your role? Uh, gosh, and it's just sort of in the last sort of six six months to a year and I have had a little bit of a sabbatical to have a young child. But my I guess my focus has changed and we we, we live and we grow and we learn, right? And you know what I what I think previously was the focus, and what is still currently the focus, probably out in the in the wider community and office spaces, is around building people's resilience and building people's individual understanding about their mental health, um, developing insight into what their triggers are and what things they need to do to look after themselves and what opportunities there are for support. And actually, what we're hearing about more and more now, and what's sort of you know growing evidence to suggest that we need to be focusing on good work. And we need to be focusing on the work dynamics, the sort of more system, systemic and organisational factors that are contributing to people's psychological well-being, whether that's in a good way or a not good way. So it's about making sure that we're, we're changing tact and focusing on the things that are best bang for buck. And while we have obviously an ambulance, we have a really cool focus on that trauma exposure. Absolutely. You know, I think alongside that, we've also got the organisational factors that are, that are similar across other industries around making sure managers are doing the right thing and engaging with people when they're not traveling well, ensuring that we've got systems and, and work design that is as as good and healthy as much as possible, which is reasonably impractical to look after our people. So I think that's the biggest challenge is that we're just sort of changing tact a little bit within St. John. And you know, while we still have to do we still have to do that individual piece and, and do education, we have to address stigma. It's a, a big challenge within St. John. We're a long-standing organisation that has some people that have been around for a really long time and, and they grew up in the in the school of hard knocks. You know, I became an ambulance officer and I just learnt and I, I was exposed to stuff and I just had to get through it and I had to, you know, take a concrete pill, all of that stuff. So we've still got those people and those messages sort of ruminating around in our, in our halls and within our organisation and we need to address that. We need people to feel comfortable to come forward and say, hey, I'm struggling, but therefore, and then to know that they're going to get the right support, they're going to get the right response. It's not going to be career limiting. You know, we're encouraging people to reach out for support and not sit back and stew and fester because we know early intervention is the best intervention and people are waiting, they're hesitant. Um, with a new new staff coming in, we're finding that they're much more open to reaching out for support. We just need to make sure that that's across the board and that some of our longer-term staff members feel comfortable. And it doesn't mean that they, they can go to anybody. They don't need to go to, you know, and say it globally to everybody. They just need to find someone safe to raise that with and get the right level of support. And I can imagine that leadership has played a really big part in this, you know, especially I'm thinking 20,000 people across the country. I mean, that is a, a lot of people to engage with and to get that culture, you know, shifting. 
So tell me about the journey engaging with leaders and managers around this and, and moving that stigma from that concrete pill to something more empathetic or compassionate. I think for a start, we've had to do some real work in changing the spans of control, particularly in ambulance. So we've historically had, you know, sort of 100 plus staff direct reports to some of our frontline ambulance management, the management tier. So in that space, there's just not enough capacity to to sort of connect with people, which is what is necessary to understand whether someone's their normal or they're not not their normal and, and there's something worrying going on. You need, you need to know people. And so when you've got 100 direct reports, you just can't do that justice. Particularly in ambulance, we've got people that are out on shifts in ambulance. And so catching up with them and doing, you know, a one-to-one catch-up once a week or once in their block of shifts is a real challenge. So we've been addressing that. We've just had a restructure. And we're investing a lot of time in training and educating our managers around how to do that how to engage with staff, how to have a conversation, you know, how, how to raise it, how to say, hey, you're not your normal or I've noticed this about you or your colleagues have raised some, some concerns. That conversation might be, easier, might be easy to start, but it's the fallout that makes people worry about it. You know, what if they say I'm suicidal or I'm just not coping and I think I need to leave work? That's what stops people from having that conversation. So it's like having the conversation and then what? Encouraging them knowing, and I've just had a meeting this morning with our frontline managers saying to them, we're always here. So never feel like you're alone making decisions or isolated and having to support someone. We have a network of support, not just like our team. We've got peer support. We have chaplains. We have our external EAP provision. You are not without options to support these people. Some people innately are good at that. Right, and we have amazing leaders that lean into this stuff and have no trouble. And then we have people that that it is something that's sometimes even intolerable for them, and so they really are hesitant about that. So encouraging them to reach out for support and get some guidance and some coaching and consult with our team or someone else that's that's experienced is really important. So, I mean, it's it's a, it's such a challenge, isn't it? Because we know evidence, particularly in in first response organisations. Managers, good managers and collegial support is the number number one control for psychological distress. So that's where we want to invest our time and our resources to, to ensure that that group of people are well looked after themselves. That's a key, making sure that they are in a position to reach out and support. You know, if you're overloaded and you're not firing on all cylinders, it's really hard to kind of support someone else. It's that domino effect. You're probably going to tip over yourself. So it's about making sure they're supported and they feel comfortable to start that conversation and then having that clear pathway to support for that individual and the manager feeling comfortable and confident that 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 follow through will occur. Mm. And I'm recalling in our, in our early conversation in the lead up to the to this session, there was a story that you shared with us, and obviously I'm aware of privacy and, and those sorts of things, but I wonder if you can kind of allude to it, where there was someone they the manager was concerned about, but actually having had the conversation, it wasn't necessarily as distressing as they expected. It was actually how the person coped with some of those things. Yeah, and I think it's about sort of demystifying what uh, about vulnerability. And for instance, you know, in our organisation, like I say, we've got that kind of concrete, sometimes concrete pill thought about things like someone crying, for instance. You know, that can, for some of our managers, can be like, oh my gosh, they're not coping. But actually, some people, it's a way of a release. It's actually something normal that they do. They're still functioning well. They can still engage in their work in a really meaningful way. They're just having a bit of a release and they've been, you know, they've done that publicly, whether they feel comfortable. So it's just making sure that managers 
managers feel comfortable to have that conversation. They do from time to time sort of go, oh, what if it's the worst case scenario? Well, if it is the worst case scenario, these are the plans. So feel free to engage and we've got all these plans in the in the background as well. So absolutely, we've got hesitant managers and I'm sure other people have, have got the same thing where managers don't want to lean into this. and But actually when they do, they realise, well, actually it wasn't as bad as I thought. And yeah you know, A, B and C has been done and we're, we're good to go and that person's doing fine. So, yeah, I think it's about making sure we're having conversations, knowing people and knowing what's their normal. So this person's crying was was normal for them. It was a, a release. They dried off the tears and back to work, you know, whereas for other people, and I know some people crying is a real indicator that they're not doing okay. So you need to know people. You need to know what the early warning signs or the indicators that things aren't going well, which requires relationship. Yeah. And I know early on with some of the work you've been doing at St. John, you were able to use language in a really clever way to help break down that sticker. What were some of the little sayings and things that you used? I'm well known for saying things like cheese slipping off your cracker. So instead of saying, you know, your mental health deteriorating or things like that, people like a a kind of a a light sort of jovial way of describing that because I think people engage better when they don't feel like it's got such a kind of big stigma attached to it or, or, or big meaning. So just, you know, I'll, I'll ring a manager and, and say, how's your cheese? And they know exactly what I'm talking about or how's the staff person's cheese? And we have different we have different varieties that we talk about. So, you know, oh, my cheese is completely slipped or this cheese is really sticky. It's, it's glued on really well. I'm doing okay. So we, we take the metaphor to, to all sorts of degrees. So I think talking in colloquial terms that fits the kind of culture and the ethos of your organization is really important and as opposed to just coming in with these sort of standard ways of talking about things. So I think, yeah, my style, I I don't sort of talk in big terms and and try and complicate things. I want people to be able to connect with what I'm saying and for it to not be something that's scary or have stigma attached to it. And and thinking about, you know, going straight to some of those... Just going to turn on my charger. Oh yeah, awesome. Some of those really big risks, so the psychosocial risks, the the PTSD. Talk us through how you know how you've addressed that either as a strategy or what are some of the sort of major initiatives outside that leadership piece that have really made a difference. Often when you're talking about sort of first response work and in the nature of ambulance or police or fire, people often go straight to the PTSD type scenario. And I think sometimes that makes us lose sight of essentially that spectrum of what might happen or the the continuum of psychological distress that leads up to such a significant diagnosis. So I guess within St. John, we don't necessarily talk too much about PTSD. It's obviously something that we do need to have some form of response to and support provisions in place to ensure that we are looking after people that do reach that criteria. But we're really working hard to, I guess, try and work at the other end of the spectrum or the continuum to ensure that people don't reach that and teaching and, and training people around how they can do that, but also how managers can support staff to recover from trauma and reduce the impact of trauma. Um so, for instance, we have, and people might be familiar with the mental health continuum, we have a wellbeing check-in tool that we have for, say, for instance, our peer support officers use, our managers use, and individuals can use. But it's just a way of, I guess, standardising a screen to look at all the different domains of life that might be impacted by stress at work. And it can be as simple as stress at work. And I think there probably wouldn't be anybody on this call that hasn't had some form of stress in the last two years that's relating to work, workload, like quick changes. There's been just a lot in that space. And so it can be, you know, the things that are impacting 
you're functioning from your way in which you're thinking, you're engaging socially, the way in which you're sleeping. And it looks at the sort of different categories of the green, yellow, orange, and red. So people might be familiar. You've got the sort of flourishing and the doing well right through to the sort of unwell and languishing. And so it's a way of just screening people in, in any one given time. So it's a nice conversational tool as well for managers to engage. So, let, you know, how are you going? Let's have a conversation about how things are. It's not supposed to be used as a check-in tool and, you know, looking down your glasses at someone's you know, on a checklist doing that. It's conversational. So there's prompting questions to glean some of those that information from that tool. And it just means that managers are really clear about where someone's sitting in that given moment. And then there's an action plan at the bottom around what sort of provisions of support they can engage in. And we have what we call a smorgasbord. I'm really food orientated. So a smorgasbord of opportunities for people to connect with that sort of stepped care approach so that people can opt in to whatever they feel most comfortable with. Uh, We know that relationship with people is really important and it's a really powerful part in the success of interventional support. And so people, giving people the choice and the option of choosing who they want to engage in is really important. So we have tools like that. We obviously have training for our ambulance staff, for instance, we also have a check-in after a critical incident. So we have 13 different criterion. We have a SOP, a standard operating procedure many acronyms at St John, which I'm still learning, which which says that if, if, a, if an ambulance officer from whatever kind of clinical practice level engages in a job such as this, so it could be, say, for instance, serious illness or death of a, of a child, known to, known to patient, known to staff member, fatalities, so there's, there's 13 different criteria that would, would basically activate a peer support check-in. So a peer supporter will text or call that individual and to say, hey, here you've been to a gnarly job or however they, they put that into whatever language they want to use and check in with people. The powerful part of that, and it's not necessarily just about that job, we know that those jobs can be traumatising or stressful or distressing. But often there's something else going on for that individual and they can say, oh, that job, that, you know, like I've been a paramedic for 10 years. No, 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 that's just bread and butter. But actually my wife and I are really having struggles at the moment because she's out of work due to COVID, you know, so it's it's a really good opportunity just to do an overall check-in with people. So it's a really powerful tool and something that we use, not just within peer support, but we encourage people to do self-check-ins and just develop some insight into where they are. So yeah, it's one of the tools that we use. Mm. That peer support, I've written that down, that peer support and that relationship, you've referenced those things quite often and those conversations between managers and leaders. It sounds to me like communication, and as you should have said earlier, the relationship is almost the backbone of all of this. It sounds like almost the key ingredient in which makes it sustainable. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think as a manager too, that's that's a real challenge because relationships take time. So it takes you some time to develop that level of trust and that level of, I guess, credibility with your staff for them to share honestly um, and, and openly and, and be vulnerable. So in it, when, it, when I say hey, that takes time, that's that time in, in sort of over the course of a building relationship, but it takes time out of your work as well. And if you've got a work where you just kind of need work kind of tasks that just need to get done and you, and you just want staff to get out there and do stuff, that that can get in the way of you creating really healthy relationships with your staff. So it is a real challenge, particularly with the work demand as it is, you know, organisations are really peeling away resource to make sure that they can keep keep up and running and therefore managers are under the pump more and more. So their ability to engage in really healthy relationships is, is being hindered by that. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that, yeah, you, you sort of referenced earlier quite a lot of the training that you've done. And so 
I mean, in part, St. John is lucky because they have a team of psychologists like yourself involved. But I imagine for other organisations who, who don't have that access to that kind of expertise, what are some of the almost go-to things that you would suggest? Well, plug for St. John Mental Health First Aid courses. I think that's a really good, and and and, and I, I don't think I'd plug anything that I do, I'm not actually behind. So a really good, I guess, overview of different sort of mental health challenges that people might come across. It gives you a really clear guide and a really easy guide to follow around how to have a conversation with someone, how to sort of start something when it comes to mental health. Um so that's absolutely available to everybody, everybody, whether it's for work or, work or just in, you know, in your own personal lives as well. This, is, this stuff doesn't just come up and work. And I, I guess encouraging if you're a wellbeing leader and if there's an ability to influence how you inform people and give them resources and help them understand looking after people. For instance, we've got a wellbeing hub and we, we pop lots of stuff on there about you know, different tools that people can use, different links. So not necessarily we're creating everything ourselves. We find things that are that are a benefit out in the out in the uh, in the web to to give people you know TED talks those sorts of things. So there's there is a lot out there. It's about finding what's quality and what works in the I guess the the culture and the the kind of philosophy or, or outline of what your organisation does because not not it's not all like for like. And it's about knowing knowing your people, not to, to an nth degree, but knowing kind of what works. And obviously, um, we have a, a clear understanding about what our ambulance officers are like. They're not all exactly the same, but they are very pragmatic people. They're science, right? So they're all medical people. So speaking to them in those sorts of terms and, and making sure that there's evidence and science behind what we're informing them. It's not just sort of plucked out of thin air, this sort of airy fairy things that they that don't always like so making sure you know your people and having conversations at that level but yeah there's lots of things out there that you can share with people to help them understand I guess you know literacy around mental health and and I think having the conversation and there are so many opportunities externally to, to get support so for instance if you didn't have an internal team of psychologists like we do here um, 1737 you know have the conversation if you get stuck Call 1737, consult with them. Call your crisis team if you're really concerned about someone. So there's always avenues for support, whether it's internally, like we do at St. John, or if you don't have that resource internally, externally as well. So people never feel like they're, they're going to be left not knowing what to do with someone who might be suicidal or you know anything that kind of makes you nervous to have the conversation. Because mm. it can be uncomfortable for people to have those conversations. I mean, we were talking about this the other day. In our realm, this is bread and butter. Talking about well-being to us is a really safe and comfortable thing. We do it all the time. So it almost comes as a surprise, which is silly, but it comes as a surprise when you come across people who are really uncomfortable about it because you don't tend to come across, well, we don't tend to come across those people so much in our world. But moving to, to the structure of work, and the onboarding process perhaps that you go through, are there particular things that you take new recruits through in terms of the culture, in terms of dealing with the psychological trauma, some of those things really early on? Yeah, so we enough. We had an entire day yesterday with a bunch of new EMT, so that's emergency medical technicians. So they are essentially the first sort of qualified clinical skill on the on the road. So we have a hierarchy on the road based on clinical skill level and you know obviously clinical practices that they can engage in. So EMT. So we had an entire day yesterday. Our team did, and I guess what we're doing in that space is 
demystifying what the what the role will be like and even having conversations over lunch with some of them yesterday they're like it's not as fast paced as I thought it would be you know like they thought they were going to be going to you know women having babies and cardiac arrests and you know car crashes but yet they're going to pick up older ladies you know off their off their floor or going to help at a rest home or you know someone's got a cough and they think it's COVID but it's not it's just a standard cough you know so there's lots of what we call low acuity jobs and people don't see that it's not what you see on TV and the movies, right? So it's about demystifying that, but talking about the challenges, not just from that that's a trauma-based response. So people assume that you know, blood, guts, and gore is what's going to make people unwell. But actually, it's all the other factors like I talked about, those organizational factors. It's the interpersonal dynamics. It's the spending 12 hours in a shift with an, with an ambulance officer in an ambulance who's in a grumpy mood. That's not good for your well-being. It's the sleep deprivation from shift work. So just talking to them about the nature of work and what might come up for them so that when it does, it's like, uh-huh, this is what, what I could anticipate through that training. Talking to them about what happens for them when they are exposed to trauma or the worst situation happens in the brain, um, how we re-experience that and how that, while that's sometimes intolerable, it's actually really healthy and normal and when it becomes abnormal and when they should be reaching out for support. So then, you know, it's, it's difficult, I think, at the beginning because they, they haven't necessarily experienced too much, but hopefully it's planting that seed that, you know, whatever happens for you in this role, whether you, you go through and we have people saying, is it okay to be okay? You know, I went to this really horrific job and I'm fine. You know, right through to, your cheese slipping off your cracker. And so making sure that we have sort of demystifying what that might be, that, that it's all normal. It's all normal. I think the term we used yesterday was, and it's a quote, it's, it's having an abnormal response to an abnormal experience is normal. And so, you know, that message, helping them understand what works best for them, individual programs around what works for them, what's one coping is not one other person's coping. You know, some people like exercise, others are adverse to that and, and break out in hives thinking about going for a run. You know, their, their bag, might, their jam might be socialising or, you know, engaging with family and friends. So it's about working out what the individual needs are in this role and I guess really pressing with them that it's a really unique time to start investing in that. They need to be intentional. They need to be purposeful and engaging and ensuring that they're okay. And they've got that, what we call that sort of wellbeing bank account always topped up because there's automatic payments in this job coming out left, right and centre all the time. And so they need to keep that bank account topped up. And they need to know when they're going into arrears slightly so they can reach out for support. And so we obviously go through all of our support provisions, how to access that. We encourage people to go and see a psychologist when they're well. You know, go and meet one of your EAP providers so that when you're not well and you have that concern around, you know, going to, I say, standing psychologically naked in front of someone. See, these are the sorts of terms that I use. That 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 barrier isn't there anymore. That you can actually you can feel comfortable because you met them when you were well, and they know what your well look like, and they know what they need to get you back when you're not doing well. So, encourage people to go really well. Use it as a warrant of fitness. It's a benefit of working for St John, and many other organisations have an EAP, and so we try and encourage people to use it. We also tell a leadership that increased use of EAP is a good thing. It doesn't show that everybody's cheese is slipping off their cracker, that actually we're addressing stigma. We've got people that are engaged and feel comfortable that that's the right level of support for them. So I guess trying to trying to deal with the nerves of the leadership team saying, this isn't a, isn't a worry that this is increasing. This is actually what we're striving for. We want more of this. I think I'm going to pick up on Chris's point saying you love the metaphor of the automatic payments come out. I love that as well. That not that such an easy way for everyone to completely understand about what that's like when you look at your bank balance and it's looking healthy and you feel good, 
And you know when things are going into arrears, you've got to take some action. <laughs> so that's a really nice way of describing it. And as you said, making it really normal. We all have bank accounts and we all have mental health. And is that mm, kind of part of the story? Absolutely. Yes, yes. We talk about mental health being health. Everybody's got health, so you've all got mental health. Not everybody has mental ill health, and that's the difference. And I think people need to understand that you know, talking about mental health isn't isn't the sort of catastrophic situation. It gets challenging in our ambulance space because, of course, what when they go to sort of a mental health job, they're looking at the pointy end of the stick, so they associate mental health with that. So it's challenging some of their preconceived ideas about what mental health is and teaching them about that continuum. That, you know, on any given day, you can you can fluctuate up and down that continuum. You know, if you're in Auckland, the traffic, particularly this morning, you know, first day back in the office after a very long time, was horrendous. So my I was up and down in that sort of green yellow a bit this morning and so it's just about your experience how you interpret it you know how you've slept there's so many factors that contribute to how you're gonna how you're gonna show up and how you're gonna feel in any given moment yeah and what advice would you provide to the people who are in this call who most of them will be in roles where they're caring for other people whether it's in health and safety whether they're well-being managers whether they're in hr and or, or in psychology you know we we come from a desire to wanting to care from others and that can put some, some challenges on for those individuals, you know, prioritising your own care. So what's some of the advice you might provide? I think for a like sort of more globally, not your own well-being, but find your influencers in your organisation. Find those people that are role models that people aspire to be like or that they look up to and use them as allies in getting your messages out. If you've got, you know, people with that kind of credibility and mana within your organisation saying, I struggled, I needed some support, or just being vulnerable in general. Um, it's so powerful. It's permission giving, right? We have an inc- incredible medical director here, Tony Smith. He wouldn't mind me saying that. Um, and he did an incredible video talking about his experiences after Fakati, the Fakati eruption, White Island, and how he was really triggered by that. And for the first time in his career, was quite profoundly impacted from a psychological perspective. And it was, it was new to him. He thought that he was immune. He's been in this. He's been in this realm of working in this space for such a long time. He's seen, done, smelt, felt everything when it comes to sort of medical situations. And he said, "I struggled," you know. And he's really, really raw in that in that video. And the the powerful, you know, people have commented on it left, right, and centre, saying this is the most powerful video I've ever seen within St John. So finding your influences, those people that are willing to stand up and say, you know, I've had my turbulent times, I've had a bit of slippery cheese, whatever the terminology is, so that it gives permission to others to say, yeah, me too. It's been it's been a tough time. So I think that's really important, that those messages of, hey, we're all human and the from, from the green to the red, we're all in between and all of it's normal. It's just about making sure that we get the right supports based on your needs. The same, I think, for yourself. So if you're a leader in this space, role modelling this is really important. You know, demonstrating as, as publicly as you are comfortable with looking after yourself and what you've done to look after yourself and I guess prioritizing that and making sure that you know are you, have you got you know have you got a break coming up that's looking after you because I think at the moment you know with burnout rates and fatigue and bits 
and pieces on the increase. Everyone thinks that, hey, COVID's over. We're on the downward slant. Actually, what we're seeing is some of those sorts of impacts and that, that, that roll-on effect is really having a massive impact on people's, I guess, just levels of stress, distress, overwhelm, etc. Managers are much more likely to, I think, 200 times more likely to burn out. And so we, we need to be showing people looking after ourselves and prioritizing it. Whatever that means for you, know who you are. Is it about running? Is it about socialising and having a coffee? Is it about ringing that that person that you need to have that social interaction with because it's the best thing for you? Is it about changing your nutrition? So it's a, I think about always prioritising that because people are looking to you for evidence that you are credible and what you're you know you're practicing what you preach. It can be a challenge. I'm not big on exercise. I don't know if anybody's picked that up, but I absolutely fill my cup with other things. So it's just making and being honest about that. You know, I I make a bit of a joke of myself and trainings around that. Yeah, I love that vulnerability. Well, the rawness and the realness of saying yeah, because wellbeing I think can end up looking like you know if we look at the magazines or TV, it looks like a particular way of living, and yet you absolutely describe it. It's not. It's really individual to to people and. What I was um, thinking about, we've talked a lot about sort of what leads into preventing PTSD and psychological trauma and and going into the red, whatever that may be for, for well-being. But let's go to recovery. So if you've had someone who's been through a PTSD experience or, you know, they have PTSD or, or a traumatic experience, what does recovery look like and how do you support them to come back to work? I imagine over a period of time. Absolutely. So I think, and I kind of want to demystify post-traumatic stress disorder a little bit. So when we're looking at sort of, I guess, the stats or or, or the numbers of PTSD within first response organisations, it's about twice the amount of the general population. So it is much more than we would want, absolutely. But it's not 95% of the organisation or or ambulances is sort of suffering from PTSD at any one time. And what the evidence does also say is there's an alternative, I guess, pathway or journey as a result of trauma exposure, and that can be post-traumatic growth. PTG. So people can actually flourish and experience sort of heightened levels of engagement in life and pleasure as a result. Now, that's not directly afterwards. Don't get me wrong. There is a journey to that point, but they can actually grow. And we've got some really great examples of people in the organization who have had a formal diagnosis of PTSD. And as a result of that, had a really good recovery phase and, and support within that space and have come out the other end and are wanting to give back. You know, they've done they've done videos to talk about and to be vulnerable and talk about their experiences and show the the outcome. You know, we've still got people that believe that PTSD is career limiting. You know, if you're diagnosed with PTSD, that's it for you. Actually, no, we know that actually statistically you're about equivalent to end up with PTG. So we want to support people to that pathway because they are going to be better clinicians. They are going to be people that give back. They're going to be people that tell their story. So it's about making sure that we support them in that, the aftermath really. Obviously, we're trying to circumnavigate PTSD, okay, is the first point, but maybe we don't get there in time. We've got someone that's holding that back and not really coming forward with the fact that they're struggling, they're not sleeping well, they're trying to avoid work, they're sort of having sick leave, they are really struggling with relationships at home, you know, they're kind of hypervigilant and they're having a really tough time. So, obviously, we we know that ACC, there's a um, pathway for mental injury at work support, so we we try and get people engaged with that because that has a lot much a much more sustainable support provision, regardless of that person stays at work or not. 
So we, we try and engage them in that. Not a perfect system, and we are working to, to challenge some of the policy around that at the moment. At the moment, that looks at just one incident of trauma and doesn't doesn't acknowledge the accumulation of trauma, which is obviously in a, in a role like an ambulance officer. You could pick a day, any day, of something that you've been exposed to that's really challenging. Making sure that that person is connected up with the right level of support with a, with a psychologist, a psychiatrist, whatever level that they need, that they like and they, they find credible and they trust. You know, I've talked about relationships. It's about 70% of the effectiveness of intervention is based on relationship alone. So making sure they have a good connection with that person. And then I think from an organisational perspective, staying connected, valuing that staff member saying, we want you back on the road, but when you're ready, you know, we want you back, we want you flourishing, we want you back when it's, when it's time to do that, but take your time. I think we have some advantages in St. John around sick leave and, and some leniency around that, and I know not all organisations all do have that. Sometimes we have people return to work on alternative duties. So they don't necessarily go back on the road, but they might engage in some other part of St. John that gives them still some sense of meaning, purpose, routine, reason to get up in the morning. Lots of people are part of St. John because it's their calling and they love this organisation. It's a, it's a whanau, you know, it's, it's where you come to be a part of something bigger. And so making sure we're, we're managing that because some people absolutely just need a break. They don't want to see anybody in green uniform. They don't want to hear the, the tones of the sirens or anything like that. So making sure that we're meeting the needs of the individual, but letting them know they're a valued part of the organisation and we want to do what's right for them and sort of trying to be as flexible as we can around how we do that. I can really hear you talking about those individual differences and as you said, kind of meeting people where they are with the things that are most meaningful for them. So, yeah, talking more about those individual differences, and I guess I'm thinking about some of those who, you know, perhaps find it harder to articulate what, what support they're looking for. And I, I like that idea of the smorgasbord. Is that the way that you've approached this by going, look, here is the smorgasbord of things, what does resonate with you? Or, or how much is it involved in, yeah, kind of teasing out those things for people? Yeah, I guess we have different ways in which we do that. So often with with ambulance officers, we have peer support. So really peer support is about that psychological first aid after the manager. So peer support usually engages with people sort of 24, 48 hours after an incident. They're not that first tier of support. We want the managers to, to kind of engage initially because we know that's number one control, right? So we're being smart about it. And then we have peer support come in and they can help sort of triage or bridge the gap between what someone needs. So these are the options that we have. This is what this one does. This is what that one does. You know, depends on what you want. Now, of course, we might have someone that we believe really needs some escalated level of care and they just sort of want to sit and do nothing. Now, nothing's mandated within St. John when it comes to intervention, but we might have another further conversation with them around that. And they might say, for instance, peer support might link in with our team and we might link in with that individual and just explain why it's really important and why we see it as a real benefit for them to do that. But again, it's not mandatory. It's completely optional for them. And, you know, nine times out of 10 or probably even 99 times out of 100, most people do want that support. They're in a situation where they know <clears throat> what's going on for them isn't their normal and it's intolerable and it's distressing. It's distressing for their family and their friends and they want to do something different. So, but it's about what works best for them and what their needs are. So... Mm. Yeah. How, much does, how much does culture play a role in that, have you found? Oh, 
huge. It's a, it's a huge part of it, that psychological safety, the culture, you know, the messaging that we get. And you, you've heard me say a number of times that we still have messaging that's really unhelpful in this space. And so we're trying more and more to, to sort of address that, address that, those messages or those messages that deter people from reaching out for support and getting what they need. Um, but absolutely. And it's a, it's a, we always say it's sort of a big ship to turn, right? It's not like a little speedboat that you just sort of flick the, flick the steering wheel. It's this big, you know, and it's going to take a really long time for us to turn some of that around. So mm. it's addressing it all the time, addressing stigma, changing the messages, having leaders that that message this stuff. It's okay to come forward. You know, if you come forward, you don't have to tell your leader, actually. You can tell someone that you know is much more confidential or that you feel is much more confidential when you have a connection with. Um, so just having those connection points where people have someone that they trust to raise the issue. Mm. I guess, sorry, Ria, what I was thinking of in terms of culture was, was almost, you know, in different cultures, the sort of the collectivist versus individualist, the power distances, some of those things where people might be less confident to talk about some of these things. How have you addressed some of that or what have you found has come up? I think, oh, absolutely. It's it's a it's a minefield and I clearly don't have the answers on the spot. I think, so you said, what, what did you say some of the examples were? Collectivist oh, so versus collectivist, individual. Yeah, and, and the power distances as well. I know that's another one that can be quite tricky, especially when it comes to some of the stuff where people are really worried about being seen as, as weak or not able to do their job or, or those sorts of things. Or even yeah, and speak. I think... Even, yeah, even yesterday, we I mean, obviously, we've got all these sort of new staff coming through at the moment. We're doing a, a sort of a surge recruitment drive and getting new staff on board. And so the messaging now is that vulnerability, not necessarily weakness, but vulnerability isn't a weakness. It's actually a strength. And, you know, knowing yourself is a strength. So knowing when things aren't right is a strength, but also having those opportunities for people to confidentially link in with support, that they don't have to sort of stand psychologically naked in front of all their peers and their colleagues and their manager. They can find someone comfortable that they have to. So while we're addressing that kind of culture, the stigma, the, you know, be quiet about it because it will be career limiting if someone sees you as weak because you have struggled with this particular job or this particular part of your role. Um, we alongside that say, but you can also, if you still don't feel comfortable to lean into this, then actually what we need to do is just make sure you have someone you're comfortable to talk to. So we have multiple ways. Like obviously we, when I say about the, the SOP, the, the peer support activation, we'll have managers do one layer. Then we'll have peer support. We'll have managers sometimes check in with them, a staff member, and they don't feel like they're getting sort of a valid or, or, or real or raw outcome from that conversation and the person's withholding some things. So they might refer them on to peer support to have more confidential conversations. And so as the program, as that program's trust and credibility grows, people will feel much more comfortable to talk about that. So I guess it's not one size fits all. It's about kind of trying to address that culture piece, but also having another opportunity for people to link in when they still don't feel that that culture piece has shifted enough for them. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon.